The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, Paul. So let's take this again. Uh, as you know, I did not like that first take. So let's let's take it again. Welcome, audience. This is the Curbsiders. Tonight we'll be talking about inpatient management of heart failure with a fantastic guest, Dr. Michelle Kittleson. Before we tell you about her, Paul, tell the audience what do we do on this show? Why are we here, and why are we still doing this? It's a great question. I think we're learning that the more we repeat the same thing over and over again, the more natural it becomes. So I think this has been a learning exercise that I'm happy our listeners get to see in real time. Um, above and beyond that, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And the expert we have today, I know I say this every time, but boy, what an expert we have. We have uh, the great Dr. Michelle Kittleson of the notorious, or I should say famous, I guess, uh, Kittleson rules on Twitter. Dr. Kittleson, she is the Director of Postgraduate Education and Heart Failure and Transplantation Center at Cedars-Sinai-Smith Heart Institute, and she tells us all about how to manage acute uh, decompensated heart failure on the inpatient setting, and we do touch on some outpatient points. But before we get there, I'm going to read off all of her numerous awards and honors and background. Dr. Kittleson is setting a new bar as perhaps the first quadruple threat. She is a physician, scientist, educator, Twitter aficionado. She received the Samuel A. Levin Young Clinical Investigator Award from the American Heart Association and the Clinical Faculty Teaching Award from the UCLA Department of Medicine. More importantly, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you are all missing out. Uh, She uses the platform to share clinical pearls and spark discussion about the gray area between guidelines. I I personally love her rules because they tend to be very patient-centric, which speaks to my heart. Uh, And in this episode, she teaches us how to confidently manage acute decompensated heart failure, what to do, how not to break the rules, and how not to irritate her. So without further ado... Let's talk to Dr. Kittleson about how to manage heart failure. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, before we get into heart failure, we're going to ask you just a little bit about yourself. First question, though, give us a one-liner and maybe throw in a hobby outside of medicine that you want the audience to know about. Okay. Um, I'm Michelle Kittleson. I am, in fact, the fifth generation of doctors in my family, the second generation of cardiologists. I <laughs> tend to characterize myself as a medical minimalist, and I am famous for my amazing brownies, at least among my kids and all their classmates. Oh, my gosh. Why don't we work together? I love brownies. <laughs> <laughs> and wait, have you tried my brownies? It, it, they shouldn't even be called brownies, but for lack of a better word. <laughs> And these are these brownies, no illegal substances or previously illegal substances in them. You know, the closest I've ever come to an illegal substance is I once held a cigarette that was not lit. I am as pure as the wind-driven snow. <laughs> okay, I'm speechless. So, Paul, you you take over. No, I'm I'm still recovering. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm going to ask my usual questions. So not not to date the show, but we're in the time of of COVID. So I've actually managed to get some books read. So now, as I've I've worked my way through my list a little bit please feel free to add back to it so I can feel inadequate again. So give me any book recommendation that that strikes your fancy. 
So one of my favorite books in the entire world is My Own Country by Abraham Verghese. It's the story of this Indian immigrant who comes to eastern Tennessee to do his residency. He's a bit isolated from the community being an Indian immigrant in eastern Tennessee in the mid 80s. And he's taking care of these AIDS patients, this burgeoning epidemic. These patients are also disenfranchised and isolated. And the stories about medicine, the stories about people, it's the most amazing book in the whole world. That is a great recommendation. That's a great recommendation. I think that's a new one too, Paul. I, I don't think, think so. we've had that before. That may get well, fast tracked above like the, the business <laughs> leadership books that I've been cheerfully ignoring for the past three years. <laughs> so we we this is a question we we often ask our guests about failures. So as somebody who has uh, been to at some point in their life been at Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, uh, so very familiar with failure. Can you tell us people? People might think that maybe you have not experienced any failures or any hardship, that everything's just come super easy to you. Uh, tell us about something you struggled with and maybe what you learned from that. Yeah, you know, um, I am very lucky that I went to a lot of great schools. And if you're on this track, you go to one and you get into another. I definitely wasn't the kind of person that things came easy to. I wasn't one of those photographic memory people. If they even exist, I am not one of those people. I have to read things 10 times before it sinks in and write it down another 10 times before I remember it. But I, um, I did try out for high school Jeopardy because I was convinced as captain of the math team that if I were to get onto high school Jeopardy, I would achieve a sense of popularity in my high school. You can tell I was a bit tone deaf as captain of the math team. Yeah, it was all team. easy street from there on out. No, it's fail foolproof. <laughs> High school Jeopardy would somehow catapult me to the fame of the prom queen and king. Um, and I didn't make it. And uh, I was not very popular. And what I took away from this, this life lesson was, is that life is long and good things come and not everything turns out amazingly. But if you work hard and you be nice, everything's okay in the end. High school Jeopardy. That's <laughs> also, also new ground there, Paul. <laughs> You just gave us some great advice, but do you have any favorite advice at any point in your career, maybe when you were a student or when you were still in training, that you can pass on to our audience? Yes, I love giving people free advice. So my <laughs> best advice for medical students is the first few years when you're learning all those facts, it's not really supposed to be fun. Just like when you start <laughs> to learn a foreign language, memorizing grammar is not fun. But once you put in the time and you learn what you need to learn, then you get to the appreciation, the enjoyment. You have to know the grammar to enjoy the poetry. And I think medicine is the same way. And knowledge is never wasted. So all all that time you spend learning organic chemistry or calculus that you may never directly use again, you've trained your brain with discipline and motivation, and that's never a bad thing. Fantastic. Can I ask a corollary? You're, so you're actually renowned for advice. The brownies, I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't know about, but the, the advice, <laughs> I think you're hugely Twitter famous for giving like great and what I think is genuinely patient-centric advice, which I always really appreciate. Do you? This is not the question you're expecting, probably. Um, do you have any idea how many roles you're up to at this point? Like, I feel like you're incredibly oh. productive. It's all really relevant, but are you keeping track at all? Or is it just a bunch now at this point? Yeah, a bunch. I mean, <laughs> anything I might rant about on rounds, I say, aha, uh -huh. <laughs> you, my small rounding audience is not enough. I need to affect the world. Let's put this on Twitter. So no, I actually don't know. I feel like that's, that would be a job for a medical student, perhaps. I mean, it's it's easily it's easily accomplished, I think, is all I'm Holy saying. Holy Kittleson rule. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then what they do with that information, I'm not sure if I can turn it into a stepping stone for their career, but if, if they were interested, that would be possible. I mean, you could at least suggest it, and then let's just see what happens. <laughs> that's right. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Paul, before we get on to a case from Cashlack, I wanted to, as always, I, I love hearing your picks of the week. So if you had anything for us, please let, let it rip. Oh, no, I didn't plan anything this week. Um, no, the new Run the Jewels album is really good. So go listen to that, I guess. Okay. <laughs> what was that? One more time? Run the Jewels. They're up to their, their fourth album. You, you don't know them? Paul, I never know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Musically. Mus- yeah. The movies I the movies yeah. are a little bit more. Yeah, it's, the yeah music now. You'll like it. Okay. Thank you. Hey, audience. If you're like me and you are into training and fitness, then you need to up your game when it comes to fitness apparel. That's right. I want to tell you about 10,000. I've been wearing 10,000 gear for the past month or two now, and I have absolutely loved it. I like to wear their seven-inch session shorts when I'm running, and let me tell you what is so unique about these shorts. Not only do they look great and feel great, but they have such a smart design. They have these no-bounce phone pockets, which I absolutely love because if you've ever tried to run in mesh shorts or just the traditional athletic shorts and have a phone in your pocket, that thing is bouncing all over the place, but... They have solved that with these no-bounce phone pockets, which I can't say enough about. Also, all their shorts, I have the interval shorts and the session shorts, both which come with a liner, which is optional. It's a no-chafing liner, which is very important if you're a runner, and I just love it. Super easy, throw them on, go for a run, and I'm not the only one that loves 10,000 because they have over 10,000 five-star reviews, plus they offer free shipping and returns, and a lifetime guarantee, so there's no risk. 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter the code CURB to receive 15% off your purchase. That is 10,000.cc and enter the code CURB. So with that, Paul, would you like to... Give Michelle a case from Cashlack Memorial to start us off. I would love to. So we're going to talk about Mrs. Athena Paradigm Rose, which is an all-star name. She is a 73-year-old woman. She's presenting with a four-week history of increasing dyspnea and edema. She says that she's now only able to sleep sitting bolt upright in a recliner. Um, previously, she'd used two pillows and was able to rest comfortably that way. She also knows that her lower extremities have been getting more progressively edematous, and this has not improved with elevation when she kicks the, the leg rest of the recliner up. Her past history is significant for diabetes. She's not currently on medication. We're not sure what her A1C is. She also has a past history of systolic dysfunction, an EF of 34% from an echo performed last year. It's just a very specific number. Atrial fibrillation, CKD, chronic low back pain, and she had uh, an LAD stent placed three years ago. So her home regimen includes carvedilol, digoxin, hydralazine, isosorbide mononitrate, furosemide, uh, 60 milligrams BID, and she's on warfarin for atrial fibrillation. Her INR when she was admitted was 2.3. So a lot of information, um, but we're, we're trying to paint sort of a very specific clinical picture. And we always like to start out very basic and kind of build from there. So before we get into what we're going to do for Ms. Rose and our evaluation, this, this seems consistent with the picture of acute decompensated heart failure. So could you maybe define that for us and sort of talk about a little bit how someone might get to this point? Sure. So acute decompensated heart failure will occur when a patient is volume overloaded, congested with pulmonary edema, lower extremity edema, which happens through two mechanisms. I mean, you can have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or you can have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But in either case, the poor heart and the kidneys start stop talking to each other. And as fluid retention occurs, it builds up. So they have symptoms of 
uh, shortness of breath and edema. When I think of how I evaluate, I mean, the first step with anything in medicine is you always want to ask yourself, why? Why is this happening? And I love the failure mnemonic. I got through medical school using mnemonics, so forgot to take medications, anemia, arrhythmias, ischemia, infarction, uptake for the loss of uh, like um, thyroid disease, our renal and then um, dietary indiscretion, salt indiscretion. So, and when I work through those options in a patient sitting in front of me, I try to divide it into what will I figure out in the history? What will I figure out in the physical exam? And what will I use laboratory and testing for? So if I think about the history, I think about dietary medication, non-adherence, other medications like NSAIDs, illicits like cocaine and methamphetamines, do they have any signs or symptoms of ischemia, PE, or uh, I think about the physical exam, are they in atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response? Do they have any valvular disease I can hear on the echo? And then laboratories and testing, are they anemic? What's their TSH? How does their creatinine look? Troponin, tox screen. So I try to put it together and organize it in that way to figure out what the source may be. One thing that Paul and I were talking about beforehand is this, this idea that it's, it's always the patient's fault when they have an exacerbation. And, and Paul, uh, this was from, so I, I, I believe this was a grand rounds I attended during residency, which is now at least seven years ago. And the, the speaker said, not, you can't always find something because heart failure is a progressive disease. And so do you, is that something that you subscribe to as well? Like, is, is it always the patient's fault or is it, is it a chance that it's just no matter what we did, this something was going to happen eventually? Oh, I love that question. So is it the patient's fault? Now, clearly there may be lifestyle or behavioral issues that are precipitating the decompensation. Um, there may be lifestyle or behavioral interventions that are precipitating the patient's decompensation. And it's important, I think, to ask about them in a way that will elicit an honest response. I mean, listen, sometimes I lie to my doctor because I want to, <laughs> yes, my children brush their teeth twice a day, every day, and we always eat vegetables. I mean, I don't want to feel bad in my doctor's eyes, my pediatrician's eyes. So I try to ask them in a way that's less confrontational. Like, listen, I know it's really hard to follow a low salt restriction. Food without salt tastes horrible. Is there a chance you've been eating more foods with salt occasionally, restaurants maybe where there's hidden salt, and to give them a way to, to be honest without feeling shameful about it. The second point I'll make is it's really important to look for a reason. The two reasons why it's important to look for a precipitant. First, if you find something, you may be able to prevent it. Maybe it is some valvular disease that could be addressed. Maybe it's a thyroid problem that could be addressed. And if you can't find a reason after an uh, exhaustive assessment based on your history and physical and labs, then that's even more concerning as your grand round speaker indicated. Because if you can't find a reason, it tells you the patient is so tenuous that anything can tip them over. And that's an insight into their prognosis. Part of what we did, and that's because this is the way I asked the question. So I, this is my fault. But we sort of we leapfrogged a little bit over the illness script and sort of into causes of exacerbation. So I'm wondering when you're when you're talking to a patient and trying to to put together whether or not this is decompensated heart failure or not, are there any historical features that seem particularly helpful to you that really kind of sense the diagnosis, like the, like the patients reporting sleeping in their recliner? Is that useful or is it just sort of incidental? Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. I, I think it's... um 
figuring out because shortness of breath can be caused by a hundred different things. So how do you figure out if the shortness of breath is actually heart failure? And to me, orthopnea is such a specific, specific symptom that really only happens when you have elevated filling pressures. So, um, and it's not just enough to say how many pillows do you sleep on because I sleep on two pillows and I'm convinced my ejection fraction is probably 70 or 75%. But it's why do you sleep on two pillows? Is it because you need them for comfort or you need them because you're short of breath? What happens if you don't have those pillows? And do you ever wake up in the middle of the night? Well, of course, everyone wakes up in the middle of the night, especially during a pandemic. Do you wake up in the middle of the night because you can't breathe? And the next question is, well, what happens after you wake up? Do you roll over and go back to bed? Then it probably wasn't shortness of breath. Do you have to get up and sit at the side of the bed? Do you walk over to the window, open it to get some fresh air? So it's how you ask the questions. Orthopnea is a specific thing. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, a specific thing. Another good clue is a lot of patients have lower extremity swelling, but a lot don't, and they get abdominal bloating instead. I don't know why some people get abdominal bloating. Some people get lower extremity edema. It's important to ask about both when you're trying to narrow down the diagnosis. I think a lot of the times the patients know how they present. They'll say, yes. yeah, my belly gets swollen. My legs, my legs never get swollen. It's so interesting how some patients just, they seem to sequester fluid in different ways, I found. So I think Paul's pointing out the illness script is that the classic heart failure patient that you think of, they might only have a couple of those things. And if the patients had heart failure for a while, a lot of the times you could just ask them and they'll like, they'll be like, oh yeah, this is my heart failure. I, I know I've had this like several times before. So another thing that I wanted to ask you, and this is again, going a little bit back to the etiology, the, the sodium restricted diet is not very patient centered just in the sense that it's really hard to follow. And I think patients have a lot of guilt when they can't follow it. I know that there's some, I think our friends at Core IM did a whole episode on this actually talking about the, is how, how beneficial is salt restriction. What, what are your thoughts on it? You know, there was a really interesting study, the Gourmet HF trial. They had not very big, 66 patients. They were followed for four weeks. They got low salt meal delivery. There was a trend towards better clinical status and fewer readmissions. But you know, is it not enough patients? Is it not long enough? Was there also people not complying with their true meal delivery? It's hard to know why that study, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So does it work or not? And it's interesting because how do loop diuretics work? You pee out salt, a naturesis and diuresis, but it's interesting that loop diuretics aren't, inter aren't associated with a reduction in mortality. Not that you'll ever randomize someone to loop or no loop, but if you do observational studies, it, you, there's a correlation between higher loop dosing and mortality. Now that, again, association, causation, you just need more because you're more sick. But the bottom line is they don't do anything really good for you. They're just a necessary evil. Interestingly, though, you take drugs like the aneprolysin inhibitor, which increases endogenous natriuretic peptides, which make you pee more. And you take the SGLT2 inhibitors with all their mysterious actions, one of which is naturesis diuresis, and they do help people live longer. So there's a signal there. And I think until we are, I, I envision, I dream of a day when future generations of patients never have heart failure. But if they do have heart failure, they don't even use loop diuretics. There's so many other medicines that do what they do so much better. But until that happens, the right answer is what works. And I do tell patients to restrict salt because honestly, 
it seems to work and there tends to be a correlation between salt non-adherence uh restriction non-adherence and and uh poor outcomes and decompensations in in my experience that being said there's also some data well if you restrict carbohydrates if you go on these low carb high fat diets that are all the rage now that also promotes diuresis so is it the salt is it the carbohydrates i don't think anyone knows the answer but what i tell patients is um how's your weight does it fluctuate and they say yeah yeah sometimes it goes up but i said do you ever notice a pattern between what you eat and your fluctuations daily fluctuations in your weight yeah if i have a little more salt my weight goes up how do you feel after that salty meal better or worse and if they feel worse then clearly there's something there and a reason for them to withhold salt so let's say our our, our producer deb who's going to be an intern next year uh she's taking care of the of miss athena here and she's admitting her to the hospital the admission orders her seniors like put her put this patient on an 800 milliliter fluid restriction and a 1.5 gram sodium diet Ugh. and the patient is like doc please don't do that to me or i'm going to leave i mean how hard do, oh, first I of all is the fluid restriction a good idea and and how hard line should we be about that if the patient's like i don't want a cardiac diet give me a regular diet what do you think for the hospitalized patient you know a couple days i love this question Okay, Deb, if your senior tells you to put the patient on an 800 milliliter fluid restriction, and what was the salt one? It was so low. It was like so- It was like under two grams, Whatever, some, yeah, grams. That horrific that you make that senior <laughs> go on the same diet for 24 hours. That's just cruel and unusual. So this is what, okay, so here's my philosophy. Yes, a two gram sodium restriction makes sense because it's, it seems to work, at least with the imperfect medications we have now, and a two-liter fluid restriction makes sense. That's not punitive. That's a good amount of fluid. Sure. If you cannot maintain a, a, a trajectory of decongestion on that two-and-two two restriction, then that patient is really, really sick. And the magic bullet isn't going to be less salt and less fluid. The magic bullet's going to be what more aggressive do we need to get with their diuresis or other interventions to make them better. Okay, great. Thank you. So audience, and, and there are, we can link to you, there's one or two trials that our, our friend Tony Brew has been putting out on Twitter in the past that that they looked at this and it, it it's definitely not going to change your outcomes if you're really aggressive and it's just going to make your patient not like you. So be nice to your patients. All right, so, Paul. It has I've... so many reasons to not like me as it is. I don't <laughs> really add to the list. So, Paul, what's your next? Yeah, what's, yeah, what's I next? Mean, I, yeah, see, you, you have a screaming into management and I still want to talk about the physical examination. I still want to, let's, let's go back to the workup a little bit. So what, what physical exam features, again, um, it's you know, just desperately clinging to the physical exam as, as the gold standard. And I, it sounds like that's not always the case. But what, what parts of the physical exam do you find useful? And then conversely, what parts of the physical exam are sort of less useful in evaluating whether someone's in decompensated heart failure and how decompensated they are? So I am, you guys might be too young to remember on 60 Minutes, there used to be a guy that did the like little summary funny part at the end called Andy Rooney. Rooney? Oh, sure. Yeah, yes. of course. So Andy Rooney is like the original curmudgeon, right? <laughs> I am the Andy Rooney of cardiology. I consider myself a total curmudgeon. I'm a skeptic. If it's new, I view it with suspicion until I'm sure it's actually it actually works. So that's a long way of saying I love the physical exam too. I love the physical exam. I love cardiology because the physical exam matters. You cannot diagnose decompensated heart failure without a physical exam. And you cannot, you can not stratify the risk, stratify your patient within decompensated 
heart failure without a physical exam. So what I use the physical exam for is number one to tell me, are they in heart failure? So I take the combination of the history, orthopnea, PND, uh, abdominal bloating, lower extremity edema uh, on the history. And then I combine that with the factors on the physical exam to stratify them into profiles. Are they warm and wet? well perfused and congested, or are they cold and wet? So what I find most helpful in the physical exam to do that is, of course, the jugular venous pulse. I love the jugular venous pulse. I love internal jugular access. The movie Braveheart came out when I was an uh, intern. And I remember going to the, I know I'm very old. And I remember going to the theater and watching it on the huge screen. I went with my good friend, my co-intern, and she was like in love with Mel Gibson. This is a long, long time ago, right? And she was like transfixed with these huge pictures of Mel Gibson on the screen. And so was I because he had the perfect triangle in his neck. There was a sternocleidomastoid. There was, and the the clavicle. I'm like, I could go right there and hit the internal jugular. See, I trained before ultrasound. There's so much about me that's old. Anyway, I digress. The the jugular venous pressure is so important because it's the most dynamic assessment of the volume status. It's a straight shot into the heart. It's your best barometer. So how do you examine it? I find that looking at the JVP is a very zen thing. You, the patient's at the right angle, you know, they're about 30, 45 degrees, kind of tilted a little up. Their head's turned, not cranked to the side, just gently turned to the side. You don't want to tamponade the, the vein with the muscles. You don't want to get the skin too taut. And then just, you know, a little mood lighting in the room, nothing too bright, not, no flat light, lights flashing right on the neck. And then you just look, you just become one with the neck. You look for a biphasic <laughs> flicker. And if you look at enough necks, you begin to see it. You see the pattern, you see the, the veins collapse. You see the shallows from where they were. You see it there. And if you don't see it, you lie them down. You sit them bolt upright. Maybe you've missed it. It's too high. It's too low. Then you see a little flicker. You're like, I don't know. Is that carotid? Is that uh, jugular? And then you say, okay, A wave, C wave, V wave. But you know, no one has ever seen a C wave. Not even Osler ever saw a C wave, right? (laughs) And you think A wave, V wave, but I don't know. I don't remember that diagram of the cardiac cycle. It's okay. There's two maneuvers you can use. First, you press on their belly. Pressing on their right upper quadrant sends a bolus of blood to the right side of their heart, which plumps up the jugular venous pulse. And so if it gets bigger as you push, ah, that was jugular. The second thing you can do is press on it and see if it goes away. Pressing on it will make venous pressure go away. It won't make arterial pressure go away. And so that's what I love to do. And I love to follow that serially. There's nothing more satisfying than looking at the JVP. I recommend to all of you out there to examine the JVP on every patient you see surgery, medicine, psychiatry, OB, maybe not psychiatry, check the jugular venous pulse. Because if you check enough normal ones, you'll know when it's not normal. So that's the jugular venous pulse. The second thing I really love is listening for an S3 gallop. Because an S3 is basically never a good thing. Never a good thing. You know, murmurs, they come and go. Sometimes you can't even hear them if it's an MR and it's really severe and it's a low gradient. AS, that'll be pretty obvious. But that S3 gallop is a very scary thing. Even a brave heart failure cardiologist like me gets (laughs) very scared when I hear an S3 gallop. Um, And then what do I not pay any attention to? So I have like a list of internal rules, which I don't share on Twitter, which are things that annoy me. So many things annoy me. One of those (laughs) things which I'll share with you is when someone says the patient is wet slash dry because they have crackles slash no crackles. 
Nothing, nothing. I can't remember the last time I've listened to lungs on a daily basis in a patient admitted with heart failure. Crackles are neither sensitive nor specific for decompensated heart failure. You can have crackles because of atelectasis. You can have no crackles due to upregulation of the pulmonary lymphatics and chronic heart failure, so a high wedge isn't reflected in the crackles on exam. So don't listen to the lungs if you don't want to. Say Kittleson said it was okay if your attendant <laughs> challenges you. I'm perfectly happy to defend my position. Look at the jugular venous pulse every day. Listen for the S3 on admission for sure. And if they're not doing better, that's my exam. So that is, that's great. I, I think uh, the, the, something that I would just point out to people, if, if you have ultrasound available and I, I, Dr. Dr. Kittleson, Michelle, I know you're, I know you're not doing bedside ultrasound yet, but I say yet because maybe you will, but for, I, I found that for the JVP exam, for the larger patients, you can actually, you do it the same way pretty much. You just, you use an ultrasound. So I found that very helpful. And you can also look for beelines in the lungs uh, with the ultrasound. So that is, that's game changing. That's really not the focus of this episode. We'll be doing future episodes on POCUS, but it is, it is helpful uh, for, for the cardiovascular exam. Um, and that may be part of the future. Maybe there will be future oh. uh, Kittleson rules based on ultrasound. <laughs> Listen, I, I might be Andy Rooney, but I'm not a hater. I'm not a hater. Like I just, you, you, you get good at what you've trained with and what you have experience with. Right. Yes. And I think there's an art to medicine. There's an art to incorporating new therapies. And if it's going to make you a better doctor, you should absolutely embrace it. 100%. Honestly, at this late stage in my career, I'm not convinced <laughs> it's going to make me a better doctor. But like you said, I may be convinced at some point. Okay. And we might be jumping ahead here a little bit, but since we're still in the physical examination, which I do like to talk about, you mentioned the S3 being a little bit alarming, even to your, um, <laughs> even to your experienced heart. Is there any other physical exam findings like, like pulse pressure, like thready pulses, other things that you hear discussed that we should, that should raise antenna or sort of prompt us to be a little bit more nervous or, or alarmed about the patient that's presenting to us? Yes. Respect tachycardia. Tachycardia is very, very bad. So tachycardia means that that poor heart cannot maintain its stroke volume, but it's trying so hard to please you and do everything it's supposed to do that it increases the heart rate to maintain cardiac output. So uh, tachycardia is often a terminal sign. And the knee jerk, of course, is to lower the heart rate because they're so uncomfortable and it's going so fast. And that can make everything so very much worse. So sinus tachycardia is a symptom, not a disease. And even atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response is a sign that something terrible underlying is amiss. So if the patient is tachycardic, I get very nervous. Let's talk a little bit about the labs. We haven't given you any labs yet for Miss Athena, but uh, our our intern here, Deb. Uh, Deb, we're just making you the intern for this case uh, as she's as she's watching us record here, listening to us record. So so Deb is wondering, you know, she's heard some some attending physicians, and this is a true story. This is something I've heard. Maybe Deb has heard this too. Some attendings are like, I don't need a BNP to tell me that someone's in heart failure, but the heart failure guidelines tell us to check BNP. So how is BNP and how is NT pro BNP being used in your practice, if at all? So the heart failure guidelines may say to check it, but they certainly do not recommend serial testing of BNP to guide therapy during a heart failure hospitalization. That is true. Yeah. So, so what I would say is this, and I'm not, I, I'm channeling Andy Rooney again, may he rest in peace, because, you know, it, you need to do whatever you can that helps the patient feel better and live longer. So let's talk about when BNP is helpful and when it's not. I consider the history and the physical to be kind of like a funnel 
that sets your pretest probability, and then you evaluate the results of your lab test through the prism of what the history and the physical have already told you. So there's nothing that, well, okay, nothing that irritates me more. We're gonna have to start a list now of things that irritate me. <laughs> you know, God bless the emergency department. They can like put in chest tubes and do trachs and diagnose like anaphylaxis, like way better than I can. But I don't like it when I get called to the ER because someone has an elevated BNP, period. Nothing else. No story. That's not helpful. There's no lab test in the world that's actually going to tell you if someone's sick or not sick or in decompensated heart failure or not in it. If it's negative, sometimes it's helpful. But if you have HEFPEF or obesity, eh. And if it's high, well, is it because they have renal failure? Is it because they have chronic LV dysfunction? So I, I, I don't rely on it. I, I say I don't like to uh, check a test that won't change my management. If by my history and physical, I do not believe the patient has heart failure, this elevated blood test is just going to annoy me. It's not going to convince me. So I don't find it helpful um, to use, and certainly not serially. That's not recommended by guidelines. And what about to compare... I don't see people following it daily like you follow a creatinine or something like that or a sodium. But on admission, they might say, okay, they're presenting to me in the mornings um, as the teaching attending. It was it was 20,000 last time. This time it's only 5,000. And the patient, you know, well, let's just say that alone. Does that alone tell you anything? I mean, not really, because say the patient okay. feels a hundred times worse. I don't know. And if they, and if they feel a hundred <laughs> times better, maybe, you know, so I don't, okay. I don't know what to make of that. And, and now there is, I know, data to indicate that if your BNP doesn't fall by a certain amount or if it's above a certain amount by discharge, it's a bad sign. But again, you know, it's really easy to do research on things that are bad signs, but it's very hard to know how that is actionable and how you change patient management based on it. So I, I, I don't follow it. So which labs should our uh, listeners and should our, our astute future intern, Deb, pay attention to when she's got this patient, she's admitting them, and which labs for admission and then to follow over the course of the admission? I mean, this is really wonderful because our astute soon-to-be intern, Deb, I feel like I can mold her and shape her before bad <laughs> habits set in. This is such a beautiful time in her unformed, undifferentiated educational life. So... If I were on a desert island with an acute decompensated heart failure patient, I had a lab because why not, but I could only get three labs, I would check a sodium, a potassium, and a creatinine. I actually don't want anything else ever. And I'll tell you why. Sodium being low makes me nervous. That makes me worry. This patient's sick. Low serum sodium is a really bad sign that they're not just congested, but also poorly perfused. They're wet and cold. K, potassium, I want to know because, well, can I give them all the good renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system inhibitors? Or can't I? And a creatinine, because the creatinine is the canary in the coal mine. It's going to tell you there's problems before you even know that there are problems because all the blood filters to the kidneys. So the kidneys, the first one to know if there's a problem. The Foley is the poor man's swan. Everyone's favorite phrase. So I want a sodium, I want a potassium, I want a creatinine, and I want them every day. I don't necessarily want them twice a day. Maybe I'm not sure yet, but I definitely want one every day. I, that segues nicely. I think we finally made it to management diet, notwithstanding. So, so can we re, can we recap first, yeah. Paul? Because we've yep. gone over a ton. Do it. So, so the the first things that we talked about was trying to figure out why they are in heart failure. You have your failure mnemonic, so the things to think through. And you gave us a whole list there. Some of them were just not taking their medication. Some of them were medications they were taking that they shouldn't be. And some maybe they were having dietary indiscretions, things like that. 
And then we also talked about the physical exam. You like you the S3 that makes you scared. You love your we're gonna get Zen with our JVP exam. We are gonna look for lower extremity edema. We have permission not to listen to the lungs, and a high heart rate should make us scared as well. And then the BNP, eh, we're not we don't we don't care that much about the BNP, and but we do care about the potassium, the sodium, and the creatinine. We're gonna be following those daily. Can we just recontextualize? You don't, the lungs are maybe not the most helpful exam when assessing for acute decompensated heart failure. Can we just, can we just frame it that way just to save some people from getting yelled at by their attendings? Yeah, please listen. If you're a third year medical student, please listen to the lungs. Uh, okay. the, the heart failure exam is not great, but also. Michelle has great system. power, but until you're an attending <laughs> yourself, uh, you know, maybe just do things by the book, but. Uh... Audience, you know that I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. I was using their services even before they were a sponsor on the podcast by like six months. It is a great idea. I'm glad someone is doing it. They make it easy for you to match with your own licensed professional therapist and start communicating in under 48 hours. This is professional therapy done securely online. They have a broad range of expertise and they're available worldwide because let's face it, it should be easier to access help for your mental health. But for a long time, it hasn't been, and that's why I'm so glad that BetterHelp is out there helping people do this. You can avoid that uncomfortable therapist waiting room and schedule a weekly video or phone session with your therapist. And if you don't like your therapist, no big deal. They make it very easy to change, which, as I've said before, I, I did it. It was easy. It was quick. Visit BetterHelp.com curb. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. They have a special offer for Curbsiders listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash curb. Okay, so I think I think now we're ready to move into management. So, Paul, uh, take us forward. We are so our intern Deb um, is excited to diurese, and she's wondering exactly what agent to start with, and then the dosing of that. I feel like sort of furosemide is kind of the classic start. Um, so, I, I know that IV diuresis is a favorite topic of yours. So, if you could sort of talk us through your your initial approach and how you how you would start diuresis in this particular patient. Yes. So we know the patient's wet, and we're going to start with a loop diuretic because it blocks in the proximal part of that tubule that everyone has to memorize in medical school, which means it's really, really effective for diuresis. So loop diuretics are where it's at when it comes to effective diuresis. In terms of the choice of loop diuretic, furosemide is the one everyone reaches for because honestly, it's the cheapest. And is bumetanide any better? We all kind of think it's better, but it's also more expensive. Okay, so I start with furosemide. How do you know? And you're going to give it IV, of course, otherwise you wouldn't be wasting the poor patient's time by putting them in the hospital. And the next step is how much are you going to give? And to answer that question, you will impress your senior and your attending by saying that you went by the dose trial to help you decide how much to give. So the dose trial, New England Journal, 2011, they took patients and they randomized them to high dose versus low dose loop diuretic, bolus or continuous infusion. 
the primary endpoint was kind of wonky. It was global assessment of symptoms at 72 hours, which I still am not exactly sure what that means. But the secondary endpoints were really useful. More effective diuresis if you are on a high-dose infusion, if you were on a continuous infusion. So really high-dose is the way to go. How do they define high-dose? Two and a half times the outpatient dose was high-dose. So this woman is on 60 POBID of furosemide at home. So we'll do something like 120, 160 IV BID to start in the hospital. How fast do you want to go? As fast as she will let you. So that's where knowing if someone's warm and wet or cold and wet comes into play. If you have a patient who's very wet and, you know, two plus edema, lots of abdominal bloating, weights up by uh, 10 20 pounds and their blood pressure is fine and their potassium is fine and their creatinine is fine. If they diurese five liters a day, that's a good thing. You, there's no such thing as too much diuresis. There's such thing as too much diuresis as measured by blood pressure, potassium, creatinine is not tolerating. But if the next day there are blood pressure, creatinine and potassium are fine, you keep going. My personal record is 11 liters in one day. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. I hope that patient had a Foley. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. I mean, he was a man and men are so weak. I'm sure he was complaining after like the first liter and we had to put a Foley in. <laughs> I take no offense to that comment. I completely agree with you. <laughs> and I wasn't, and I, it was, he was wet and he was warm and that's why it had to happen. And I wasn't even trying that hard. And you know who was the best doctor the next morning? It was me because even though he was up all night peeing Foley notwithstanding, he felt so much better. I would like, I have a couple things that I wanted to touch on with diuretics. You, you mentioned the two and a half times the dose and Lasix or um, furosemide, bumetanide, they all seem to have a threshold. And when you give them IV, they're supposed to act quickly, right? So what I commonly see people do is they give it and six hours later they go back and they're like, did it work? But I feel like you can tell early on in the dose if it's going to work or not. Do you have any specific guidance there that you that you give to people or do you just give it the full like spacing between? Oh, absolutely. I think it's very important to be aggressive cuz remember Every day this patient spends in the hospital is a chance to fall out of bed or get C. diff, right? So you need to do whatever you can to make that hospitalization as short as possible, which means you have to diurese them as effectively as possible, make every minute count. And you're absolutely right. Within the first few hours, you should see a rush of diuresis. And there is that threshold effect. Like, for example, if 40 isn't working, the answer isn't to give 40 more times a day. The answer is to give 80. Patients just seem to have that need. They will, they will tell you what their threshold is. And I think it's, it, it's okay to be aggressive and go up on it. So to find exactly as you say, that moment when it works and then maintain. Yeah. I think usually like if you give 40 IV and within the first hour or two, they're not like peeing a lot, then you can just give them 80 and yes. just, and, and go right to it. And then the other thing that I find is if you're doing a good job with diuresis, the patient will tell you about it. Like if you ask a patient, I gave you the diuretic, did it work? And they're like, <laughs> and they have to think about it. Yeah, they're not sure. It, it didn't, didn't work. work. Yeah. It yeah. didn't work. Whereas so. if their urinal is on their bedside table and it looks like there's water in it, you're like, yeah, <laughs> I've done a really good job today. Exactly. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the other thing, I, oh, you, okay. So we, we told our patient, we're going to give them a totally reasonable, they can drink up to two liters a day. So 
how much urine should they be making from this from this diuretic? You mentioned eleven liters. That's that's a record. But what's like a reasonable target to shoot for? And, yeah. and if we're given Lasix twice a day, I mean, a reasonable target, as far as I'm concerned, is a minimum minimum of two liters negative. I mean, three okay. liters negative, four liters negative, fantastic. And how I sometimes like to do it is work backwards. So I say to myself, every plus of edema is going to be five pounds or so. So if someone has one plus, two plus, three plus, four plus, I can figure out they have anywhere from 10 to 40 plus pounds to lose. And then I say to myself, okay, if they have 30 pounds to lose, that's 15 liters. If I try to make them two liters negative a day, we're here for an awfully long time. If I can make them four liters negative a day, this hospitalization will be much shorter their blood pressure, potassium, and creatinine allow. So I'll try to be very aggressive and get to that minimum two liter mark on the first day. If I get there, and the blood pressure, potassium, and creatinine are still okay, I might even push farther on the second day to get three to four liters negative. And I love LASIK, uh, furosemide drips. I love furosemide drips. And people say, well, the dose trial didn't show a benefit. I'm like, really? In global assessment of symptoms at 72 hours, that's a tragedy. (laughs) You know what? They are just magic. And you start at 10 mg an hour and you're up to 20 mg an hour and you turn them off between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. because we are not sadists. We are physicians and you do need to sleep at some point, but you'll get so much bang for your buck during the day. So for my threshold is if I can't get someone to pee how much I want them to pee on 80 IV twice a day, I just go to a furosemide drip because I just find it works. And it's, it's not unusual when these patients sort of initially present, you mentioned their creatinine is okay, but it's not unusual for the patients to have elevated creatinine. They're very congested. They lost some forward flow. Does that, does that impact your dosing or how do you sort of factor that into where you start the diuretic dose? You know, as long as the, as long as the creatinine is a little high, but not a lot high, what does that mean? If it's less than double baseline, then I, I want to push because their creatinine is either high because they're so congested and it's going to get better as I decongest them, or their creatinine is high because their index is so horrible and, de- and attempts at decongestion are going to fail. But you still have to give decongestion a try at first, unless you have other obvious, obvious signs they're in cardiogenic shock because their blood pressure is horrible. When we were talking, uh, we did an episode on HefPef with uh, Clyde Yancey, Dr. Clyde Yancey, and he mentioned he mentioned that there's a, some different phenotypes in heart failure. When you're talking about HefPef versus HefRef, the speed at which you can diurese somebody, is there a difference as, how, as to how aggressive you'll be? Because we, our patient, Miss Athena, that we're talking about, we're talking about HefRef. Yes, it absolutely makes a difference. I mean, they are two 100% separate animals. They almost shouldn't even have the same related names because they're so different. Um, Hef-PEF, so, so the, let's talk about Hef-REF first. So the major malfunction in Hef-REF is, of course, you've got this poor, weak, failing ventricle, which leads to a lower stroke volume, which leads to then congestion because things back up. The beauty about Hef-REF is that if you afterload reduce them, then there's the poor failing ventricle and actually increase its stroke volume and feel better and everything gets better. And as you diurese them, those little sarcomeres stretch better like they're supposed to in the myocytes. And you can see how well I did in all that part of medicine. But (laughs) diuresing them actually can improve their cardiac output. So life is good with Hefrev. It's a malleable dynamic condition. Hef-PEF, on the other hand, is more of a mechanical condition. You've got this stiff heart 
with a fixed stroke volume. And because the heart is so stiff, blood backs up and you get congestion, but it's not the same kind of congestion. You're going to get liters and liters of fluid with hef PEF, the, the garden variety HEF PEF, you're going to get more of the lung congestion, pulmonary edema, and you also know that small changes in volume lead to big changes in pressure when you've got this stiff heart and less compliance. And afterload reduction works not at all because they have a fixed stroke volume. When you try to afterload reduce them, they don't augment this wonderful response. They just get tachycardic and hypotensive and, and worsening renal function. So it's a completely different animal. So if someone has HEF PEF, I will diurese them more gently, one to two liters a day, letting their blood pressure and creatinine guide me more than anything. And depending on, now, HEFPEF itself, that garden variety, little old lady with hypertension and atrial fibrillation who takes her NSAID and then she gets heart failure, but then it's kind of okay between episodes. That's its own animal where there is no guideline directed medical therapy, but small bouts of diuresis which usually fix people very well. There's these special forms of heart failure that tend to have preserved ejection fraction, like amyloid, these restrictive things, and, and so fascinating, this new area of amyloidosis, they're a little different in that you're never going to be normal. Even between episodes, there's going to be an inexorable trajectory of downward decline. And those patients almost never have a normal JVP because they're basically stiff and restricted all the time. So if I have one of those patients, I don't try to normalize their JVP because I can. I will diurese them only to symptom benefit. And then think about the bigger picture. What else can I offer this person with this mechanical problem where there are no medical solutions? Wonderful. We also always get a lot of questions about if you have somebody on diuretic, let's say they have, we're, they're on furosemide, 120 to 160 twice a day, and it just doesn't seem to be working, or, or even if they're on the drip and it doesn't seem to be working, when do you reach for metolazone or a thiazide diuretic to, to, boost, to boost that? Right. So the sequential nephron blockade, as those fancy nephrologists like to call it. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so my threshold is if you're an 80 IV BID of furosemide, it's not working to get you at least two liters negative or more, then you go to a drip. And you go to a drip 10, 20, 40, 80. And if an 80 milligram an hour furosemide drip is not giving you what you need first, you're getting really worried at that point. And that's either happening because the patient's like sneaking in a ton of water without you knowing, probably unlikely. The patient's um, kidneys are just not very good, or the patient's heart isn't very good, so the kidneys aren't seeing. So there's reasons this could be happening. So you may reach for the metolazone in that setting. And I like to reserve metolazone because I find it's um, scarily effective. It will make you pee, but it will make you pee at the expense of your sodium and your potassium and your creatinine, my, my beloved labs. Your sodium will plummet, your potassium will plummet, and your creatinine will go up because it's so unpredictable and such a huge, strong gun. So when you're reaching for metolazone, that can never be the end of the story. You're reaching metolazone and, and you're trying to figure out why is this happening? Is it the heart's really bad, the kidney's really bad, or both, and why? You mentioned your precious labs. How dogmatic are you about the potassium of four, the magnesium of two? Me? Dogmatic? I don't even know what you could be speaking of, sir. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you, yes, because I feel like every... 
sometimes you do things, you read it in a textbook. Sometimes you do things because you didn't and something bad happened to a patient. So over at Cashlack Memorial, there have been instances where patients' potassium has fallen to low levels and they've received, and they've gone into ventricular arrhythmias requiring defibrillator shocks. And that is iatrogenesis in its most perfect form, right? They did not have to get hypokalemic. So I think keeping your K above four and your mag above two is not because you're going to have a dangerous arrhythmia at 3.9. It's because you want a buffer so that when someone slips in that metolazone late at night, that they still have a buffer that they're not going to get into that dangerous zone of hypokalemia. When it comes to hypomagnesemia, you know, one thing I love about mag is you can't really overdose on it. Any pregnant <laughs> woman will tell you, you can give as much mag as you want. And honestly, if you, if you give it orally, they'll just poop it out. And mag is just kind of sometimes just the wonder drug that fixes stuff. So you're diuresing the patient and they're really happy because they're peeing a lot and they're feeling better, but they're not happy because they're just achy all over and they got the, the, the ennui, the, the furosemide ennui. So what do you do about that? Sometimes just a little bit of extra mag, even if the mag level is okay, fixes everything. So I love oral magnesium oxide for that reason. So with, with your permission, I'd like to take us back to the admission orders. Um, <laughs> okay. So it's we so intern Deb has already has, has chosen her dose of diuretic. She feels good about it. Um, and the patient, by the way, has been adherent with her medications. Let's just put that on the table. So she's on carvedilol, 25 milligrams twice daily. And let's say the patient's blood pressure is 90 systolic. Their heart rate's in the 50s. The patient actually, uh, from a blood pressure standpoint, doesn't feel lightheaded or sort of presyncable or woozy or anything like that. Which sort of the, the eternal conversation is what medication should we be holding? Should we just stop the beta blocker right now because the patient's blood pressure just seems so tenuous? And what medication should be hanging on to like grim death? And what should we be dropping for the time being? <laughs> hanging on to like grim death, hanging on to like miraculous survival. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, okay. Guideline directed medical therapy should always be continued during hospitalization unless you have a really good reason to justify why not. Meaning the reason isn't Oh, they're hospitalized. It has to be something more than that. So let's talk about beta blockers first. So there are uh, observational studies to show that if you stop the beta blocker in the hospital, in hospital and short-term mortality readmissions are higher. Now you could say, what is that? Cause, effect, are they sicker because you stopped the beta blocker or, or they stopped the beta blocker because they're sick? But really, if you look at the baseline characteristics in some of these, they're actually the same. And stopping the beta blocker patients, patients did worse. Could be an element of therapeutic inertia. Like when you get to clinic, oh, they're not on and on. I'm not going to really restart it. They probably had a good reason for stopping it in the hospital. So for all of those reasons, keep them on the beta blocker. When would I get rid of it? I would get rid of it if there's obvious things, like the patient has symptomatic hypotension, significant bradycardia heart rate less than 50. Why else? If they had a recent increase in their beta blocker dose that you think is the reason they got into this decompensation, that's a good reason to say, maybe you don't even have to stop it. Let me peel back and see where the dust settles. And the other reason would be, I think I need an inotrope. If you think you need an inotrope, then that's a good reason to get rid of the beta blocker. Otherwise, keep it going. So, so this lovely woman with a blood pressure of 96 systolic and a heart rate in the 50s who feels okay, if the creatinine's normal, remember the canary in the coal mine to tell us that our, we're perfusing okay, then I feel comfortable continuing the beta blocker. Now, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors, they're amazing 
because they don't just make people live longer. They actually make people feel better acutely. There's acute hemodynamic benefit of the afterload reduction. So you're continuing the Secubitril Valsartan, not just because they're going to live an extra five years because of it. You're continuing it because they'll actually feel better in the hospital on it. Their hemodynamics will improve. Um, uh, ditto for the spironolactone. Well, there's two reasons for spironolactone. One is the long-term mortality benefit, of course. And then the second is the potassium sparing properties. Again, we're thinking about patients' quality of life. We don't want them to starve too much in the hospital. We don't want them to be up all night peeing. And we don't want them to have to swallow those horrible potassium horse pills. So because you don't want that, you try to max out the spironolactone as much as possible in the hospital as the, for the case-bearing properties. Now, what about their kidneys? How bad do their kidneys have to be before you're going to take those medicines away? So if their kidney function is less than two times their baseline on presentation, I would continue it. If over the course of the first few days of hospitalization, their kidney function is stable and they are responding to your diuretic efforts, meaning their kidneys are clearly doing what they're supposed to do, there's no reason to hold off on your wonderful renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system antagonists. That's great. I, I think it's really common uh, when, you're, when you're taking care of patients in the hospital, you'll get a call from the nurse uh, patients do for their morning meds, their their blood pressure is 95 systolic and their heart rate's 55. Do you want me to give their beta blocker? Do you want me to give their medications? And it sounds like as long as the patient's feeling fine, creatinine stable, the answer is keep them on that. We want their blood pressure low. They have systolic heart failure. That's actually after load reduction. That's helping them. And we want their heart rate slow. That's neurohormonal neuro blockade, right? Yes. And so I, I usually look at it this way. You have only a certain amount of blood pressure to spend. So what are you going to spend it on? So you're going to spend it first and foremost on your Secubitril Valsartan slash ACE inhibitor slash ARB. And the reason you're going to do that is because you get acute hemodynamic benefit in addition to long-term um, mortality benefit when someone's in the hospital. And then if you still have blood pressure to spend, you're going to put the beta blocker on board. Now that prioritization may change if the patient is an ischemic with a ton of VT, then you might say, I'm going to prioritize my beta blocker. So if you feel the blood pressure is marginal, you can do it that way. What I like to do with the admission orders is say, hold um, Secubitril Valsartan for systolic less than 90, hold Carvedilol for systolic less than 95, or something if I think the patient's going to get into an issue and I want to pri prioritize one over the other. Great. That's, that's fantastic. So what, maybe um, what's our sign out to our night float look like? Because I feel like that's when you're getting the nighttime. So what, when should they be worried and call for the swan and when should they be giving the extra diuretic? And then you can yell at us for even suggesting they get extra diuretic at nighttime. So my philosophy on what you, how you sign out a patient with HEFREF is honestly, just let them be, let them be. Don't look at their ins and outs. Don't look at their vital signs. Don't even check a PM basic metabolic profile. If the AM profile looked okay and you didn't give them metolazone. And why do I say that? Because sleep is important. And I think there's nothing crueler than when I go and I review the vitals in the morning and in our computer system, they show you 12-hour bits. So they say I's and O's from 7A to 7P and then 7P to 7A. And if I see that the output from 7P to 7A was five times what it was 
in the more in the daytime. I don't. I'm scared to go in the patient's room. In fact, that's one reason I look at the vitals before I go in, so I'm prepared of what I might have to manage at that point. It's just mean. So it makes more sense to be far more aggressive in your dosing. It makes that's one reason why LASIK furosemide drips are so important. Um, and if someone really is an extremist, they are so short of breath, they're not going to make it without that spot dose. They probably shouldn't be on the floor anyway. So give your night throat a break. Give your patient a break. Let them sleep. Just be very aggressive the next morning. First point. Second, okay, say they have hypokalemia in the morning and you do want to recheck it or they're on a Lasix strip and you don't feel comfortable. You need to recheck it or they're on metolazone. Don't check it at 6 p.m check it at 3 p.m. Then you get it back by 4.30. Then you order it at 5 and the patient gets it at 6, as opposed to the other scenario where they're woken up at 10 at night to swallow a potassium horse pill. And that's just mean also. So that's what I would tell the night float is kind of just set it and forget it. Hey, night float, I've done a good job. So you don't have to do anything. Hey, yeah. And the other thing is you, yeah, exactly. You, you take care of the daytime team takes care of it. It's, it's probably safer that way. Anyway, you know, the patient better to make the decision about if they need more or not. Well, sometimes when you get a patient in the hospital and you're diuresing them and maybe their creatinine started to go one way and they're still having an oxygen requirement and you're just, you feel like you're not sure what's, what's, you've been given pretty high doses of diuretic, but they just don't seem to be going the right way. When do you decide to get, get them a swan, you know, give them a swan if that's, if that's what we call it anymore, right heart catheterization? When do you, when do you reach for that test? So swan Gans catheter, poor Dr. Gans always gets short shrift. Swan Gans <laughs> catheter, pulmonary artery catheter, right heart catheterization, all synonymous terms for allowing us to measure filling pressures in the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart, pulmonary artery pressures and cardiac output. It's really the sine qua non of diagnosing any form of shock. So how do I decide when you need it? I like to think about the holy trinity of decompensated heart failure, where you have volume overload. And if you have one of two other criteria, you need a swan. So if you have volume overload plus renal dysfunction, progressive renal dysfunction, or if you have volume overload plus progressive hypotension, then clearly what you're doing isn't working. And it's either not working because you're totally wrong and they're not actually wet, or it's not working because their cardiac index is so horrible that your diuretics aren't even getting to your kidneys in the first place. And the only way to sort out that, that vast conundrum is with a pulmonary artery catheter. So that's when I reach for the pulmonary artery catheter. But we must all remember that it's a diagnostic, not a therapeutic intervention. The very act of throwing in the swan does not make things better, right? You have to act and interpret the numbers. You have to have tools and goals. So your goals are an RA pressure less than 10, a wedge pressure less than 20, a cardiac index greater than two. And then you have to use your tools, diuretics, inotropic support to make, meet those goals. And you have to have an exit strategy. Am I putting this in as a bridge to recovery and they're going to tune them up and everything's going to be awesome? Or am I putting this in as a bridge to more advanced heart failure therapies down the line? So Deb, Deb is really just giving all this, all this medication, all the diuretics, she's following all your advice but she still feels her patient isn't getting much better. How would she know when the when the patient does need an inotrope or inotropic support, as you just mentioned? You know, you can start an inotrope empirically if the creatinine or canary in the coal mine is moving in the wrong direction. And you say, I'm looking at this patient. I don't need the pulmonary artery catheter to tell me that they are still massively volume overloaded. You can start a touch of an inotrope 
dopa, dobutamine, milrinone. The right answer is what works. No one knows. And C, if that, aug that support augments your diuresis. You can then say, well, gosh, I hate to operate blindly. Let me in the light of day place a pulmonary artery catheter to see what I'm actually doing and why it's working. Or you can say, you know what, this patient's not really a candidate for anything more aggressive. If what I'm doing right now is working, let me just keep it on for now. And once they're effectively diuresed, wean it off at that point. Okay, fantastic. So we've, we've done all this. We, let's say <laughs> maybe they, they took, they took a, the patient went to the CCU and they got better. They've now come back out. They're looking much better. They're off oxygen. When do you decide to switch the person back to oral diuretics and how long do you keep them after that? Let's talk about the what's our endpoint and what's the transition of care going to look like? Right. So good endpoints are resolution of symptoms, normalization of your jugular venous pressure in HEFREF, absence of abdominal bloating, lower extremity edema. These are, are the lofty goals we aim for. Bad targets are clear lungs or uh, quote-unquote dry weight. What is this dry weight? Do patients have a magical scale at home that actually knows when they are normal volume and not congested? I don't think so. So yet another way to um, irritate Kittleson on rounds is to say, uh, the patient came in uh, at volume overloaded and now I have diuresed them to their dry weight so they're ready to go home. What does that mean? So you may give them a new dry weight, but you never diarese them to a self-reported dry weight unless maybe they are an accountant or an engineer. Then maybe <laughs> the dry weight is okay. But even then, I'm not 100% convinced. I would say, or a former chief master sergeant in the military, in my experience, because those they keep records of every, they keep meticulous <laughs> records. All right. Yes. I'll accept that. <laughs> okay. So- so we get them down to a weight that we feel is reasonable, uh, that a weight and symptoms and everything's looking better. When, what does a good handoff of care look like? And is there any, that you, that you have, you have the audience's ear here. So when, when should they be seen in the office after leaving from this heart failure admission? So first, let me talk about what dose I'm going to put them on to leave the hospital. So how do you decide? So a good rule of thumb for any medical student or intern is whenever someone asks you a question, it's never a bad idea to say, well, what was the last blah, blah, blah? Like, what did the prior EKG show? Or what was their outpatient diuretic dosage? That's really helpful to calibrate what they may need, right? Because if the patient came in on furosemide 20 twice a day as opposed to 80 twice a day, that'll give you more insight on what their outpatient patient dose should now be. Now, it might be the same that they came in on if you're convinced they absolutely weren't taking it at all, but it's likely going to be higher than they came in on because what they came in on despite their best efforts wasn't working. And I have another rule, so many rules, that if you're 500 cc's negative in the hospital, you will be even at home because no one keeps as good track as we do in the hospital of what they're eating and drinking out of the hospital. So what I like to do on the day before discharge is put them on the diuretic dose we have fashioned and then watch them for 24 hours and see how negative they were. If they're two liters negative, okay, better back off. If they're like uh, 100 cc's positive, 
better go up. I would rarely, if ever, keep them a second day to make sure that oral dose worked, but that gives you insight of how to adjust the oral dose for discharge. The other things it's really, really lovely to do is actually put the admission weight and the discharge weight in the discharge note. That is so important because even though I said, what do I believe about a patient self-reported dry weight, I do respect the dry weight after a hospitalization for decompensated heart failure, and that can be really useful to compare when they come back to clinic, which they should do within a week. They should absolutely 100% be seen in clinic within one week of discharge to have a basic metabolic profile to make sure your magic of potassium repletion was actually accurate and to make sure that their medications are working. And is there any, so much emphasis is placed on readmissions, which I, I fully understand. Is there any evidence about any of the other ancillary stuff that we tend to do? So things like heart failure education while inpatient or callbacks, or is there any other stuff that seems to be helpful to keep folks out of the hospital once you've gotten them back to where, where you'd like them to be? No. Uh, no. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, no, but I mean, this oh, cardio, this, this wireless implantable hemodynamic monitor known by the trade name CardioMEMS. There was a study that indicated in HEFREF and HEFPEF it reduced heart failure hospitalizations. The study itself gives me some pause because of issues of blinding um, that may not have been perfect. So I, until a guideline comes out that really gives me more expert guidance on the trial, I don't tend to see that as a 100% reliable way to guarantee uh, the lack of future admissions. This may or may not be a rapid fire question. Are you using, to prevent heart failure hospitalizations, are you using SGLT2 inhibitors? Um, I'm using them, period. Am I using them to reduce heart failure hospitalizations? So the DAPA-HF trial is a very, very exciting moment for us heart failure transplant cardiologists. I mean, I remember where I was in August of 2019 <laughs> when, when the DAPA-HF trial results were reported. Now, they were reported at the European Society of Cardiology meeting in Paris, France. And I'll tell you, I was not there. Sadly, but I remember that's okay. I have three children. I'm never, ever going on vacation (laughs) ever again, but that's a whole nother story. So these drugs are mysteriously, beautifully wonderful in ways we don't understand. And they do um, promote diuresis and naturesis, and they do reduce heart failure readmissions and hospitalizations, but so do secubitril valsartan evidence-based beta blockers and the, and these, and the aldosterone antagonists. So I just consider them as part of the armamentarium of guideline directed medical therapy, so-called quadruple therapy that's now been touted and promoted that patients should be on. And I know we're in acute management, but are you, are you, because I, I have the exact same question. Thanks for asking it, Matt, but do you, are you typically adding those on or if they happen to be on them, then you think, oh good, this is even better that they're on this medication. So amazingly, um, just in May, so just seven, eight months after DAPA-HF came out, the FDA extended the approval indication of dapagliflozin is that how you pres- is that how you pronounce it? Dapagliflozin. I try not to. Is my answer to that <laughs> yeah. question? That's why, like, I say Kepra. Oops, I can't use a trade name, but I can't say the other name for Kepra. Thank goodness we're not talking about seizures. So, um, so dapagliflozin um, uh, now has an indication to be given to non-diabetics with HEFREF. How amazing is that? So I've been prescribing it left and right to patients who are non-diabetics who have a creatinine clearance above, it's either 45 or 60 based on the requirements from the FDA. I've been giving it, counseling them on the risk of genital infections. If the patient, and oftentimes lowering the loop diuretic dose because of the properties of of, uh, diuresis. Now, 
what if they have diabetes? So one of the wonderful perks of being an attending physician is I'm allowed to say things that I don't really like and I don't want to know anymore. And on that list, I put <laughs> diabetes and I put glomerulonephritis and I put fever and a rash. I don't need to know about that stuff. Oh, how dare you? We're internists. You, uh, that is, I, that <laughs> no, is you, 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 that's insult. not an insult. That's a compliment. <laughs> My brain is too weak to wrap itself around these scary conditions. I cannot learn them. I cannot. So, diabetes. Weren't you a Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> So now you're just rubbing and get in, huh? huh? All my failures, no road scholar, no high school jeopardy. When does it end? So back to the important point here about saving lives. So um, if someone is diabetic, then I don't really know what to do. So I call my phone a friendly endocrinologist or internist, and I say, listen, can you help me, please? I really think this will be a good medicine. To which the smart doc replies, are you kidding, Kittleson? It's a type 1 diabetic. Don't you know anything? Or will help me transition the patient appropriately to an SGLT2 inhibitor. Right. Yeah. I think uh, for the audience, the the use of SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, we talked about these for perioperative medicine. On the inpatient side, uh, for they're not being used so much largely because right now, in my experience, they're not on hospital formularies. That's one of the big things. So I think that will be probably an evolving area of practice. I'm not sure, Michelle, if you have been continuing them on patients as part of their guideline-directed therapy or in addition to their guideline-directed therapy? Yeah, you know, I, I'm just not sure now that you mention it. Yeah. I mean, so many things boil down to cost as opposed right. to medical benefit. But you know what? That's okay because it doesn't – I mean, if you start as an inpatient or outpatient, either is just wonderful and outpatient sure. is perfectly fine. All right. Well, you know, this has been such a pleasure – Unfortunately, we at some point have to let you go, or fortunately for you, I should say, you, you mentioned you have three children, so I imagine they would like to see you at some point. This uh, is like a vacation for me. Listen, I could do this for another few hours. It's totally cool. They're like, oh my gosh, we thought that excuse was going to work. How do we get rid of her now? It's okay. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I did the recap for the first part where we were talking about the kind of the diagnosis and the workup. Did you want to try to recap a little bit about the treatment stuff that we've been talking about and any take-home points that you wanted the audience to remember? Yes. Um, can I do take-home points in general or just from the treatment stuff? Yeah, you could do take-home points in general. Maybe that's okay. the better way to go. Okay. I mean, I think the first take-home point is you always want to know how sick your patient is. So are they warm and wet or are they cold and wet? So wet is easy. We talked about the jugular venous pressure, et cetera. The cold part, what's their creatinine? What's their sodium? That what, Are they tachycardic? That's going to help you. Second is please let the patient sleep. So don't spot them in the middle of the night unless they're in extremis. And beware of the potassium horse pill, which makes people unhappy. So spironolactone is your friend in the hospital. And finally, the holy trinity of volume overload, hypotension, and rising creatinine. That, those are bad combinations that make you think you need more information. All right. Uh, anything you'd like to plug before we before we let you go? Um, you know, if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic, I would send you some of my world famous brownies. But when the pandemic is over, I'll send you some. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure that's a valid excuse. I have to be honest with you. I'm trying to parse through that. There's, I mean, the mail still works. Grocery stores have flour now. Like that's not. Well, I don't know if you wanted my. If I'm potentially an asymptomatic shedder sending infected oh. brownies through the mail, I wasn't sure about your risk aversion. 
I think that ship has sailed. I think I'm fine for brownies. I won't speak for Watto. I, th- I think but. Paul's Paul invited me to a COVID uh, party this weekend, actually. So and the I... first person who tests positive wins a pro- wins some brownies. Hooray! Yeah, exactly. Anyone who knows me know I'm not inviting anyone to any parties. So that's patently wrong. All right, we'll just fade this into the outro. Uh, this this was great. Thank you so yeah, much. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Now you guys uh, are awesome, incredible, and I just love awesome doctors. So thank you for being like awesome doctors. No, ditto, right back at you. Yeah. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Sure. <laughs> Get your show notes <laughs> at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, but to do that, we need your feedback, so subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us. Also, you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our fantastic producer, Deb Gorth. She is in 25th grade, as she told us before the episode, so congratulations. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are presumably hearing now. And we should also thank Claire Morgan of Not Relief for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.